Welcome, everyone. This is my first episode of A Gift from Adversity. I published my book called A Gift from Adversity. This is my book. And in 2020, and I've gotten a lot of comments and then messages from all over the world sharing people's adversity and how they overcame. So I got this idea that I wanted to start New Year Resolution 2022 that I posted on Facebook page. And then Deidre kindly reached out to me that she is willing to share her story. So let's get started without further ado. So can you please share your adversity? What happened? Absolutely. Um, so in 1993, I was attending um, a middle school um, in a Cushnet, Massachusetts. Um, and we had a um, gunman enter our school building. Um, he had taken the life of our school nurse and was attempting to um, take the students hostage. Um, thankfully, I had a principal, uh, Mr. John Tavares, who um, was able to tackle this gentleman and end um, this situation before any more loss of life or any more undue harm. Um, I was quite young when this happened. I think I was about 12. Um, and I kind of pushed past it a little bit and like kind of stuffed it away. I was, I was a child, you know, I was very young. Um, and I kind of put it in a place where even a lot of my friends, uh, my family, I don't even like talk about this with them. You know, I don't go into depth with it. Um, and Years later, I found myself in Boston working at Brigham Women's um, in a medical um, facility as a medical assistant, um, and Sandy Hook had occurred, and I kind of felt these new feelings bubbling to the surface, things that I hadn't experienced before, and I kind of started to feel that pain of what I had been through as a child and what I never really had addressed. Um, and then, unfortunately, in 2015, um, gun violence would enter my life again, um, this time in a clinic. Um, I was working as an advanced care coordinator. Um, and I'd been in the clinic for just a little under a year um, when this incident occurred. Um, it happened very quickly, very rapidly. Um, what sounded like giant sounds, like, you know, as if you had pushed like a giant file cabinet or something over, screaming and calamity. And I remember I'm just sitting at my desk and I heard one of my coworkers come and she yelled very loudly because she couldn't really gather my attention and said, active shooter as loud as she could. And I had taken a voluntary training um, right after the Boston Marathon to learn how to protect myself in the event of an active shooter. And there's three things they teach you. And these are the things that um, stay with me for a long time. And those are the three options they give you, which are run, hide, and fight. And my instinct took over and I began to run. Um, and grab as many people who were willing to run with me. And not knowing, was there more violence? Were there more gunmen? What was really happening? And it was very cold outside. It was actually almost a year to the day, January 20th. Um, and so I took these people and we hid in a bathroom together, me and several mothers. Um, I wasn't actually a mom yet at the time. And we hid there and we had to wait in darkness for help to come. We had to wait for police or people to identify themselves. And there was this moment of fear where we actually got this reverse 911 call that came through. And um, my brother was listening to the news and they could talk about these women crying in this restroom waiting, you know, to figure out what was going on. And it's still very much a blur as to how I exited that restroom 
the things that I did in those moments when the police identified themselves. I just remember kind of bursting into the room and wanting to escape and get out of there. And I think the sadder part too is that I suddenly had these memories of everything that had happened to me when I was young. And I knew that when we left the building after everything was over and we were determined that the gunman had ended his life, that we now needed to face this wall of media. We needed to face these cameras and we needed to face all of these people that are going to now be, in my feeling, exhibiting our pain to the world. And I really um, remember just feeling this instinct to protect the people around me and say, if you don't want to be on camera, hide your face. And in one of the pictures on the Boston Globe, I'm actually holding one of the women that was in the restroom with me um, in that situation. And it moved quickly. You know, the police interviewed us and we had a big giant meeting in a staff room. And then we went back to work and things just kind of were like for the couple weeks, honoring the doctor who lost his life. Um, and then it kind of stopped talking about it and people just didn't say anything anymore and didn't know how to ask us about it or interact with us about it. And I didn't know, should I share this with other people? Like, how should I talk about this? And how can I like just carry on or do I just stuff it down like I did before and pretend that this is part of life? And I did that for many years um, until I moved to New York. And when I moved to New York, um, I came to an area where guns are a little bit more free. People have them around a little bit more. And I kind of started to regress to this place where, you know, now I'm in a country environment. So I think about the first shooting and now I'm in this other environment. I'm constantly thinking about it and it's taking over a lot of my waking life. And I started to become very afraid as to what that was going to do because I would find myself exploding on others, you know, like getting easy temper, being this high level anxiety for so much of the time. And I knew that I needed to do something to stop it. Um, when the pandemic came, I had this time with my doctor and she said, how are you doing? And I said, I really don't think I'm well. I think that I've gone to this point where I can't manage this anymore. And um, I have a dear friend, um, Dr. Jordan Perzik, um, he's a professional psychologist, a dear friend of mine who, um, you know, had in the years between where I wasn't seeking therapy, was giving me good advice on how to kind of protect myself um, from these thoughts and how to kind of connect with myself um, and realize that these events weren't normal. These weren't something that I should accept. These weren't things that you should have to relive through active shooter training. And um, when I entered into therapy, one of the main goals this past year was to how to avoid that training again. So I didn't go back to that place. And I didn't go back to that place of fear where I, you know, would worry if someone knocked at my door, like I wouldn't go to sleep unless all of the, everything was locked and how I could get to a place where I felt safe with myself. And I felt like this couldn't happen to me again. And um, I started to kind of look into ways that I could use information from my family, from my therapist, from my dear friend as to how to get in a place where I could talk about it without shutting down where I could have a moment or a flashback and how I could bring myself back to reality. 
and how I could be more present as a mother, how I could be more present as a human, and how, in a way, you know, and this is kind of my first step, how I can like advocate so like other people know that you can survive these circumstances, like you can make it through, but it isn't easy and it doesn't have to be, you know, it does have to be hard and um, you can make it easier in different ways. Um, and some of the things I do with that, um, I carry grounding stones with me. And if I feel like I am not in touch with the moment, I can touch something physically to remind myself where I am and how I'm present. And I can remind myself of things in a room. You know, I know that tree, that tree is always in that place. And I can kind of bring myself back to reality and I can kind of be ahead of it and slow these things down to a place where I feel like I have more control and I'm not living in this place of fear. Wow. It's so devastating to hear that you had actually experienced twice in your life. Mm -hmm. And usually, like I personally never experienced that fear in my life. And to be honest with you, I don't know how you're coping the PTSD, just the way that you described of touching things, grabbing things. Do you know DBT? So so it's D, it's called DBT. I've tried that before. So I'm a survivor of child sex abuse and then I have this PTSD and flashbacks where I can't even know like where I am or like just mm-hmm. get really panic attack so DBT is one of the methods that I used um just to say you know look at the candle or say your name and date like where you are Mm -hmm. so those grounding techniques that I was taught by the therapist also and EMDR eye movement resensitizing the processing I EMDR is something that I've done a couple times so is there any method that the therapist um Technique-wise, I know you mentioned about like maybe grabbing things and there's something that's existed that you can share with other people when people are maybe having this uh, extreme panic attack or PTSD reaction. Absolutely. Um, So um, I use like a stone that I touch that is smooth, it is soft, it's heavy. I can feel its weight in my pocket. And it's something that I can just grab as like a quick reassurance that like I'm in the present, you know, and it's not big. It's about this size. Um, and I keep that piece with me. Um, other times too, if those things aren't working, I will do like a vasovagal um, breathing where you're taking in this breath and you're letting it out so long and you're bringing your heart rate down. And I've found that I can stimulate that with breathing And I can also stimulate that, as my therapist described, the feeling of when you're diving underwater, when you have that cold like ocean in your face and you feel that going down your spine, I will find ways to stimulate that for myself, whether it's putting an ice pack on my face, running my hands under very cold water, even splashing my face when it's something more extreme and I feel like I really need to get back quickly and I need to do it fast, and the breathing isn't working, or the stone isn't working, I have these other things that I can fall back on quickly that kind of help me get in that more centered place or that more grounded place. 
And a big thing I do too is I'm very cautious now about anniversaries and I'm very cautious about my media consumption and how triggering those things can be. And I try to be ahead of a lot of that coming at me. I try to really be mindful of where my stress level is because I feel like when you get to this certain height of it, of your stress level, all these other bad things start coming back in with it. And I really try to push that away the best that I can so I can feel like I'm a little more ahead of the things that, you know, make me afraid. Yeah, thank you so much for being brave and then sharing with our audience today. And this is really the reason why I wanted to start a gift from adversity because my story is really surviving the child sex abuse and the bullying and domestic violence and homelessness. And then when I was 20, just like what you said, like people stopped talking about it and you just couldn't talk about it. And I really couldn't talk about it. And then the the, my trigger was, for instance, like when somebody says, okay, what does your father do? Where is your father? And that just triggers everything. And I just started to cry. I couldn't put it to the words. So it took me like six years of therapy and EMDR and then speaking on a podcast or maybe publishing a book or these kind of platform helped me a lot. And then sharing my story as a motivational speaker in the public. So, um, when you share your story with your friends, uh, families, like, you know, how, how does that do? Do you think people should actually share adversity if they can? Do you think that's kind of a healing process or not really? I th- it depends. Some people I'll share it with and I can immediately sense that they're very uncomfortable um, or they don't know how to talk to me or they don't know how to address it or, you know, they don't know how to bring it up. And I've kind of found that maybe I'm not meant to share it with that specific person. Maybe, you know, I'm meant to share it in this kind of situation, or maybe there's people I know I can share this information with. Um, And yeah, a lot of people, they're not receptive to it, or they're surprised by it, or they're surprised that I still work in healthcare, um, or they just don't know how to like talk to you. And I think that can, in a way, make you feel a little bit worse sometimes. Um, And that's why I was so moved by your post, because I feel like a lot of people just, we don't talk about it. And and sometimes when people haven't been through something so traumatic, you feel like you can't connect and there's no room for you to share so you can continue to heal and help others heal too. Yeah, that's so good point. And I have, I just want to bring up uh, two of my close friends. Uh, one is David McKinney, who lost his father by 9-11. And then every, he was 80 years old when his father got killed at the World Trade Center. And then he's adult now living in Japan. But, um, you know, every 9-11, obviously, it's really, really hard for him. And the media coverage, obviously, is really hard for him. So I can completely, like, kind of connect your story and his story. And then anniversary is really hard for him. Um, he just shuts off everything. And I think uh, everybody has different um, takes on these anniversaries mm-hmm. and, you know, how to cope. But also... Um, you know, to be able to share or not share or people feel uncomfortable, people don't know how to approach you uh, when after they learn what happened to you. So I have a friend who lost um, her child and then after that, people just didn't know how to approach her. So she kind of lost her friends when she needed friends. And then I think that is 
why I thought this is, I felt compelled to do this platform, not only like sharing your story, but for other people to, you know, feel okay to share the adversity and then be able to connect and then just learn from each other. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, my big thing is that I've really focused hard on not letting this trauma like be my identity and, you know, not let it be how I dictate my day-to-day life. Certainly things are going to affect me differently um, than they would another another person given what I've been through. But I've always been that kind of person where I just won't let it define me. You know, I can't do that to myself. And having a space like you've created, Jury, just really, I think, opens a lot of doors for a lot of people who need to hear that other people, whether it's the loss of a child or something traumatic in my case or the abuse that you suffered, you know, people just need to know there's others out there who are living and, you know, having the life and, you know, there is something on that other side of the darkness. Yes, absolutely. I I truly appreciate you coming on today. And Thank then you, so nice to connect with you after so many years of not seeing uh, each yes. other. That was crazy job. Yes, that was a crazy job. <laughs> crazy job. So uh but anyways, um I just wanna revisit a little bit. I know you kind of went quickly uh, yes. about the active gun shooting. So the middle school, what happened in the middle school? You said you were like in the school and then the shooter came to the school? Yes. Um, So this gentleman, um, it was a very small town. He had arrived in the school um, with a shotgun and had reported to the principal's office. And our principal got on the loudspeaker and announced, we are in a hostage situation. Please, like, remain in your classroom. Do not leave. And just knowing that someone is now coming down this hallway and as he was coming down the hallway where my classrooms were located, our principal was able to wrestle the gun away from him. And two of the teachers had come out into the hall, one of them my math teacher, and they had stopped him before he got to the children. They had stopped him before he got to us. And um, I think the horrible thing about that is that when it keeps happening in school, I'm like, is it ever like going to stop? You know, and um, even going back to it now, I'm just, you have these what ifs, like it's like when someone dies, like you try to bargain, like, well, what if this happened? What if this happened? And a lot of the times I think, what if they didn't do this? What if they didn't make it? And I try not to focus on that anymore. I try to say, they stepped out, they went beyond themselves, and I try to connect it in what I did with Dr. Davidson's um, shooting is that I decided I needed to protect people, and I needed to get those people out of that space and away from where these things were before anything else happened, before anything else got worse, and in retrospect, before any additional loss of life. Wow. So, experiencing that and you mentioned that you did the activity shooting training after mm-hmm. Boston as well and then um when unfortunately this happened at the Brigham that you were able to kind of rescue or rally people around to run and hide mm-hmm. so um for some people who first time experienced uh this active shooting situation what were their reactions um there was a lot a lot of fear Um, lots of fear, lots of uncertainty. Um, 
and lots of what do we do, you know, looking to someone like, and I remember identifying myself, like I did the training, like I did the training, like you can trust me, we can do this and we can do this together. Um, and I think the hard part was, you know, you're in this room and you don't, we had one cell phone between all of us because we just dropped everything. We just left. Mm. And now we don't know what's coming. We don't know what's down the hall. We, even when the police came to get us and tell us it was safe, we didn't know. We couldn't hear them. All we could hear was this heavy thudding and this fear that just really took over. And, you know, in a way when we were out, there was a sense of relief, but a lot of people the next day when we were talking in a big group about what had happened said, how are you so comfortable with this? Like, how can you talk about this? And I said, I've lived it before. And I didn't think I would have to be in this space. And I didn't think I would have to be sharing this in life again. Um, and I kind of just felt like it was a duty that I had to like, you know, carry on and show people how to navigate through this. And it really took, I think, a toll on me to try to do that as well. So we want to, um, we have five minutes left for this. Uh, okay. And then I just want to really bring to the light of this trauma that you experienced and then other people at the Brigham and in the middle school and then all the other people all over the world who had been through active shooting situation mm -hmm. that um, as hard as it is. Oh, by the way, my friend um, just messaged me. Thank you, lady. Something on the other side of the darkness. Um, I just got a nice comment. Um, so I just want to highlight about a gift from adversity. So a gift part coming from this um, adversity, my gift um, that I talked about is a perspective that I learned. The perspective means the moment that I share. So right before we got on a live, um, I was reading children's book to my daughter and that felt very peaceful and centered. And the moments like that, when I was growing up, I never had that. It was always sense of emergency and always abuse, physical, emotional, sexual. Something is going on, even if it's not just me, like between my grandfather and uncle beating each other, something like that. So it's it was always chaos. It was always chaotic. So for me, people maybe don't realize this kind of, chilling, relaxing moment is really a manifestation of hard work and creating a safe space. So the perspective I learned, a gift I would say, is that I, I'm more appreciative and humble. So what do you think your take is if you can put a word, a gift from your adversity? Um, I think a big gift um, has just shown that I have uh, my you know capacity to love um, a capacity to um, have love for strangers, to have love for humanity, to have love for those around me, and to have love for, you know, in my opinion, and this is usually it was moms. I was in a room with moms, and I'm a mom now, and I take these moments, and I realize when, you know, with my own daughter, you know, she'll come up to me, and she'll give me this big hug, and we'll have this big moment of joy, and I take that moment of joy and I just remind myself, me and these mothers were together. Me and these mothers who needed to be protected, who needed to be shielded, 
who needed to know someone was looking after them and worrying about them and their children. And I think I kind of put that into my own kind of parenting. Like how much love can I bring to her and how much love can I show to others and how can I relate to other like moms and other people who need to feel protected and feel appreciated and feel heard and seen. And I pour that love into them. Wow. It's truly um, honored. I'm, I'm truly honored that you have shared this story with us. And one of my friends said um, so much bravely. And then that's really um, the platform that I wanted to create. And I truly appreciate you sharing your story today and then sharing your perspective tools and then a gift that you learned from it. And I really hope the rest of your life that um, as a survivor myself, I have not been in an active shooting situation, but having to have this monster in my head that I just, I'm 45, but like, you know, I just feel like, is it gonna ever end? Is it gonna, I'm, am I ever gonna be free from it? And yeah. it's very hard, but at the same time, you know, one thing I want to share with you and then the audience is I read some, um, in, I saw an interview of this girl um, that, that was like kidnapped for years. And then the media insensitively asked her, why are you smiling? Why are you able to smile? And then he, she said, like, she kind of blushed off. And then she said, well, because that's what happened to me. That's not who I am. And I, I thought I was so brave. So just take us a... Yeah, absolutely. And then you, I'm sure for those mothers at the Brigham that you had protected for the hours of the darkness, that um, they would remember you and appreciate you as a hero forever. No, and I, I appreciate them too. And it's hard to hear, you know, the word hero as well, um, because, you know, I think a lot of it to me would have felt worth it had Dr. Davidson lived. Um, but, you know, he it didn't happen that way, but I have to take, like you said, you know, have to find that gift in it. And, you know, if small hero status is it, then that's it. It's good. And that feels good. That feels okay. Yes, absolutely. Because if I was in the situation and if I got frozen with my children, I don't know what to do. And if somebody had lived through and then trained and then be there, not just as a police officer or a civilian, just, you know, somebody around me who knows what to do, like, you know, I I would definitely, uh, in Japanese, um, it's a wara ni sugaru. It's like, you know, even if you are, like, if you're drowning in a river and even if you see a straw of uh, this, like, wheat or something, like, you know, gra grass, yeah. that <laughs> you hold on to it, you know, in an emergency situation. So I think you gave savior and then comfort to these people. And I think they... In the fact, I, I can tell from the fact that maybe you had reduced the amount of trauma they have to go through in the in the rest of their lives because of you. So I just want you to um, know that what you have done, unfortunately, what happened in middle school, but because of you trained and then you kind of knew what to do. I am sure these people will forever appreciate you. Very very sure. Yeah, so, and then just be kind to yourself and then yes. be brave. And I really appreciate you coming to my first episode of uh, Gift from Adversity. Thank you so much, Jerry. Thank you for your patience and my technical difficulties. No and well, thank you for making this a safe place um, for me to share. This is really invaluable. 
Absolutely. Well, thank you everyone for tuning in. And then my next episode is Thursday. We have Harvey Mack coming in and she, he is, he has a podcast in down in Florida. I was interviewed by him before and he is a multiple suicidal attempt survivor and he shares black men's mental health um, on his podcast. So uh, when you are free Thursday night, 9.30 PM, please join us again. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sherry.